I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Sea Beast. For a sailor, a map tells of seas to be explored. Of great reward and great peril. But it's where the map ends that the true adventure begins. It's below us. A hunting ship ain't no place for a kid. I like this kid. Them pictures in me books come to life. It's where it's out there in the vast unknown. That we find who we truly are. No. Don't worry. If there's one of them things within a mile of us, I'll sense it. Maybe a little off my game, yeah? This is a commissioned episode for Chris Finnick, and we hadn't yet seen the film when Chris asked us, so we had to watch it once to confirm that there was a potential School of Movies show on it. Turns out there absolutely was, and this was one of our surprise favorite films of the year. It was directed by Chris Williams, who has extensive experience with Disney, working on 18 of their animated movies since Mulan in 1998. Chris Williams co-directed Bolt with Byron Howard, who notably went on to co-direct Tangled, Zootopia and Encanto for Disney. Chris Williams also co-directed Big Hero 6 with Don Hall, who notably went on to direct Raya and the Last Dragon and Strange World for Disney. So he comes from a group of talented, very visual creators who tell emotionally driven character pieces. This film was scored by Mark Mancina, who worked on Disney's Tarzan, which, may I add, has mostly great Phil Collins songs. I am amending my statement to that. Please stop atting me. <laughs> And he also uh, scored Brother Bear, which has aggressively mediocre Phil Collins songs. Not my words, the words of Daniel Floyd. And the absolutely wonderful Moana, which has spectacular Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tay Vaca songs. Director Chris Williams also co-wrote this along with Nell Benjamin, who comes from a musical theatre background, including adaptations for the stage of Legally Blonde and Mean Girls. And her first original, full-length, award-winning off-Broadway play was about a group of women trying to infiltrate a 19th century boys-only explorers club. And now I want to see that. Yes, but it's on stage in 2013. Do you have a time machine? I do not. And an aeroplane. <laughs> I do not. Accordingly, The Sea Beast is a Netflix-funded animated feature with a style somewhere between How to Train Your Dragon and Moana. And comparisons definitely don't end in style. There are a lot of things that they seem to have influenced this story. But it never feels like it's cheaply pinching stuff, mm, you know? Yeah, it's the way it blends those threads together. 
It details an alternate Earth where the oceans are home to Leviathan aquatic kaiju. Upon these oceans sail monster hunters who ply their trade in tracking down the big ones and hauling monster parts like horns and teeth back to port whereby the crown, the royal family, issue a reward. It has been this way for a very long time, several hundred years, with humans effectively at perpetual war with the sea beasts, as at war as the Vikings were with the dragons in How to Train Your Dragon. Ergo, we can all guess the truth behind the matter, or at least kernels of the truth behind the matter, because it's actually left satisfyingly vague as to the exact specifics at least of how this was begun. But it's definitely leading in a direction we've all travelled in before if we watch great animated films like this. But the absence of surprise in the twist is more than made up for by the earnestness of delivery. There is nothing cynical about this at all, and it's not trying to be clever or postmodern. It is telling us a familiar tale about one's eyes being opened, and it is telling it with confidence and flair. Jacob, played by Carl Urban, is a longtime hunter serving on beast-seeking ship The Inevitable under Captain Crow, played by Jared Harris, who was Moriarty in the RDJ Sherlock Holmes series and the best Jared in the film Morbius. Agreed. So let us set the scene before we get to Maisie, the other significant human character. What is the status quo at the opening and how do they convey the details? I've already kind of given us a rough overview, but how does Captain Crow run his ship? Comparisons with Long John Silver start early and continue. In oh, yeah. particular, the, the interpretation Treasure Planet for version. Treasure Planet, yeah. The Not exactly avuncular, tough. but kind of like a... You know, uh, he's a big hunk of granite that the sailors yeah, can rely on. Absolutely. But he's also not completely shitty about it. There's, there's Even early on, you get the impression that he has some give in him, that he's he works with his crew, not on an equal basis. He's the captain and he makes the decisions. Uh, but one of the things that I noted in particular is the early setting up of like a three-person leadership triangle. You've got Captain Crow, you've got Jacob who is the captain in waiting, and you've got Sarah Sharp who is the first mate. And he clearly listens to them when they have things to say. It's not my way or the highway. He is observant of what's going on around him and he makes what he considers to be the right decision based on what information he has at the time. He doesn't seem to have a lust for power. No, no. Well, he's, he, he doesn't need to. He's got power. It's his ship. Part of the opening salvo is the compare and contrast between Crow and Jacob, who is very quickly established as the potential future captain, mm. and how they might differ in their approaches to things. It's kind of like if Jacob was Jim Hawkins from uh, Treasure Island yep. and just continued growing up under John, uh, Long John Absolutely. Silver, but Long John Silver's actually just a very professional whale hunter mm -hmm. rather than being a skullduggerous backstabbing pirate. Indeed, yes, absolutely. Um, so it's not like it at all, but... <laughs> yeah. And one thing that particularly interested me is when they get to their explanation, and I'm, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but when they get to their explanation of the code, which... It's more of a guy. First off, <laughs> let's just say these guys are not pirates, but they are so pirate-coded 
that they might as well be pirates. There is a point where he reads in a book uh, of, of their exploits and says, we don't <laughs> we say don't yar. Say, ah, anywhere near, near as, as much as, as you think. <laughs> Indeed. The code that Jacob describes, and he's using this as a way to influence Crow to go come to the defense of another ship rather than chasing after his white whale. Um, which is His the, white whale, however, is absolutely there. It's oh, just yeah. not as immediately obvious as a white whale. Absolutely. Um, so he says, the code binds us to all who came before and all who come after. And that immediately made me think of, um, there's, there's something called the seventh generational principle, or the seventh generation principle, which is a framework that... Um, that the decisions we make today should result in a sustainable world seven generations into the future. Now this was the... So the trees that we plant now should be well grown by that point. Absolutely. Now this was the basis of um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Holy shit, folks. It became what they referred to as the Great Law, which formed the political, ceremonial, and social fabric of the Five Nation Confederacy, later Sixth Generation Confederacy. And it is also credited as being a contributing influence on the American Constitution due to Benjamin Franklin's respect for it and for the Haudenosaunee system of government. So this was sort of a, a, a theory and a principle that Franklin observed in the natives around them as they were settling America and went, that makes fucking sense. That's going in our constitution. That's going to be one of the principles that underpins our constitution. Okay. And this idea that you have respect for and understanding of your ancestors, but the choices you make need to be made not just in terms of the benefit to yourself or the benefit to your own immediate children and kin, but much, much further down the line and radiating out into the tree that goes forward as well as the tree that goes backwards. He also references a certain principle from WandaVision regarding the ship itself. The ship of Theseus. Yeah. I'll let you take that one. Okay. So, (laughs) judging by what Sharon's just said regarding generations, uh, what he says is that every timber in this ship has been uh, replaced over the years. Uh, it's, it's It's an old ship, but it's very good at what it does. And it will continue to last, but I won't. So what he's effectively saying here is, I need to pass this on to you, Jacob, but there's more complexity in the idea that you're bringing up of the ship will go on, it will serve generations hence, Mm -hmm. I am just a link in the chain here. The concept and the system that surrounds us will continue and we're just pieces in that. But there's an acceptance of the uh, evolutionary changing nature of the ship of Theseus so it doesn't have to be the original it takes the idea of when does it cease to become the ship of Theseus and says it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because it's now got a new captain indeed but there is also um, another really subtle element of that scene when Crow is showing Jacob the, the log he demonstrates to him this is my section yeah this was my father's section His father's section is substantially thicker. His father's before him was thicker again. So the implication is... They've been hunting beasts for a long time, but there are fewer. With every generation. That is incredibly subtle. this is going to end. Because the ultimate... Even if they continue down the road that they're trying to continue on, the ultimate end is no more monsters, which means they're putting themselves out of a job. 
So already we can see that this system is not something which has always been, because at some point it started, and it is not a system that will always be, because it's already getting less and less. Specifically, it is not a system that is unchanging generation to generation. Absolutely. It is a system that has become leaner by generations, yeah. much like, say, oh, I don't know, just picking them out of a hat, the energy crisis, mm. the uh, the fact that we started with a lot of oil and now we have a lot less oil. Yes, or an ism that starts with a C and ends with an apatal. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so, but the... The, the allusions that they make as well to how this came about, that once upon a time the monsters came to us and attacked us and came so close to our shores that they were snatching women from their vegetable patches as they tended them by the coast. And we had to... Who will tend to our vegetables now? Yeah, absolutely. Who, Who... will make us parsnips <laughs> just the way we like them? Who will save us poor ants? <laughs> um, so the, the, the... But that's, by the way, honing in on the whole... They're going to take your women folk if you don't destroy them. Absolutely. And using that as a pressure point to get the people to do what you want. But we'll come to that later. Because under this binary system, a man's life has no meaning if he doesn't have the woman that he was that protecting, protecting and helping to nurture his family. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, that led to the founding of these so-assumed eternal ships that will go out into the, what do they call it, the deep moor? The briny depths. There's, there's, there is a specific term that they use to refer to the wide open sea that mm. they go out onto to hunt the monsters to prevent them from coming close to, to where they live. Before we get to Maisie, I'm actually going to jump forward a little bit to the scene after she, well, several scenes after she's introduced. Uh, and that's the audience with the king and queen at Three Bridges. Uh, which is this giant, it looks like the Nova Corps, sort of giant star. It also looks like Stormwind from uh, uh, Warcraft. A uh, little bit Minas Tirith in there, a little bit Port Royal. And it's uh, a sort of a grand palatial white marble area of opulence and gold and gilding. It's not disgustingly gold and gaudy and, and an eyesore like somebody with... Trump's taste might make, but it does, th there is a major step up in, in difference between the way that uh, Captain Crow and his crew have been living very earthy kind of salted wood and a teetering deck. Those textures are done away with in terms of these giant, very planted in the ground and reaching up to the air, almost cathedral-like structures. Yeah, and while everything may not necessarily be plastered in gold, which is the most obvious demonstration of wealth, mm. the fact that, and this is, this is a, a pretty subtle one, but symmetry very rarely exists in nature. Exact symmetry requires wealth, power, consistency and structure to maintain it. When you're being battered by the sea constantly to maintain a sea wall that is pristine and white and roofs that are not affected by whatever winds might come your way, that takes money. And that's a way of them showing here is our wealth because everything looks clean and perfect. Enforced symmetry to distract from natural asymmetry. Aha. Hmm. Uh -huh. Indeed. 
Okay. In an audience with the king and queen, Jim Carter is playing the uh, king. He was from, uh, he's in Downton Abbey. Oh, that's notable considering who the admiral is. Uh, but the queen is played by Doon McKeegan. I don't think any Americans will know who she is. If you're English and you've ever seen anything with Alan Partridge in it, or anything made by Armando Iannucci, you'll know who Doon McKeegan is. She's not necessarily prominent in the film, but her role is incredibly important, as is the king's. Yeah. This is a clip from the day-to-day, a blackly humorous, totally straight satire of news broadcasting in the mid-90s, in which she played a finance consultant in a parody of the impenetrable language of economics. Time now for business with Calatoly Sisters. Thanks, Chris. Take her off the monitor. I didn't want to see her face. And no let-up today for British manufacturers. There were large profit slumps for Securivadge and United Haha. Here at home from tomorrow, the new Bank of England £5 note comes into circulation. The notes, which feature the head of Iggy Pop, can only be used once. You do it! Get it now! No, you get it! It's over there! Arguments like that broke out on the international markets today when economic talks collapsed and Spain withdrew from the world and began trading with itself. The peseta burst open at four. On now to the money markets and a quick look at the international finance arse. And there you can see the US and Japanese cheeks started off with a gap of 2.4, but increased trading forced the two together to form a unified arse at around lunchtime, which held for the rest of the day. In summary then, oh no. But she's not the only obscure 90s British figure here. We've got Marianne Jean-Baptiste, uh, who plays uh, Sarah Sharp, the first mate that you mentioned. Uh, she was in... Secrets and Lies, which was maybe the biggest Mike Lee film ever. It got Oscars. Uh, she was also in Magnolia, but I haven't seen her for a long, long time. So hearing her now here is this sort of grizzled old mm. sea oh, dog. She's was fantastic. Fabulous. Her performance was great. It was also noteworthy there was a, a red-headed uh, lady uh, who was sort of shouting orders as well, so Sarah Sharp doesn't have to be wandering around shouting. Uh, and it, it seems like there's very much a sort of open opportunities. They're, they're not going to wield sexism on the high seas. Absolutely not. I mean, the one thing I really love about the, the crew and the way the crew is presented is that they they all get their moments to sort of share their thoughts on the situation as it's going on. They're not a single entity. Mm. They have different ideas, different perspectives, but they are all connected through the inevitable and, and through the experiences that they've shared. And there's this subtle visual diversity of a variety of identities, but they're bound together by this concept of mutual rescue, that whatever happens, they have each other's backs. It doesn't matter how different they are. It also reminds me on a superficial level of Sinbad and The Legend of the Seven Seas, one of the last uh, animated films DreamWorks made in the hand-drawn style. However, another 90s figure who's uh, in this is Kathy Burke, who was in a load of Harry Enfield-related stuff, if you're British and watch TV then, but also things like Nil by Mouth, uh, the Gary Oldman-directed film about uh, domestic abuse. She's a really kitchen sink actress who's just very down to earth and she turns up as uh, Gwen Batterby the, uh, the the sea witch who's in one scene. It's kind of a, a movie stealing scene. You're like this woman's coming back at some later date. She's not. She's just there mm -hmm. to effectively uh, give a deal with the devil for Crow to make but um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was fantastic just seeing these these women from late 90s British stuff suddenly turning up in a 2022 big profile Netflix animated film. Tales of Captain Crow, chapter 23, The Legend of Gwen Batterby. There's not a soul on the sea that doesn't shudder when a blood moon rises in the night sky. It's a sign, they say, 
a sign that a deal has been made with none other than Gwen Batterby, the notorious weapons dealer and practitioner of the dark arts. They say she's lived for a thousand years, promising to fulfill any seafarer's desire for revenge. But it comes at a terrible price, for those who enter a pact with Gwen Batterby are forever lost. To find her, one must sail to Murkesh Island, a barren rock on the edge of the known world and refuge for pirates and outlaws. Those who climb the broken stairs that wind their way to Batterby's lair are driven by delusion, believing it will be them, among all others, who will escape the spider's web. Those fool enough to enter her terrible workshop will find themselves transported to the realm of nightmares. The burning smell of sulfur, the heat of the furnace, and the grinding of the mill conspire to overwhelm the senses. And to look upon her is to gaze into the abyss. To approach her is to walk away from your own humanity. To behold her mortal form, bent by centuries of work, is to write one's final chapter. To see her scornful smile and her malevolent gaze is to look into the face of death itself. Yet she is but a mirror, a reflection of one's own twisted desires. For it is the beholder, not Gwen Batterby, who is the architect of their distraction. Ooh, I love a good scary story. I'd like to meet that Gwen Batterby one day. See if she's as bad as they say. Might just need a hug or something. Maybe she's hungry. I know when I'm hungry, I'm awful. Admiral Hornigold, again, it feels like he should be uh, a more significant character in this. Like, you expect him to play the Jack Davenport in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean mm. type role. Uh, he's played by your best mate, Dan uh, Stevens. <laughs> Sharon does nothing but whine about how much she hates Dan Stevens, day in, day out. I think I made an observation once that he was pretty mediocre and I couldn't understand why everybody was raving about yeah, him. And okay. apparently that means I hate him. If Dan Stevens had pigtails, Sharon would be pulling on them. Um, anyway... <laughs> But uh, uh, Beastly Dan Stevens is this sort of you know, a posh sod of a, uh, an admiral and presents kind of a foil to Crow insofar as he is going to replace this long tradition of professional hunters. The Royal Navy are going to be doing that job now. Mm. And from what we've been saying and seeing it the second time, it's so blatantly apparent as to why the Royal Navy are going to be taking over the professional hunting job. And yet the King and Queen still managed to make Crow feel like it's his fault. Mm, absolutely. Also, did you notice that there's a pattern in the names of the ships? You've got the Monarch, yep. which has already gone down. Yep. The Inevitable, which isn't going to be for very much longer, and the Imperator, and Imperator comes from um, a Latin term meaning to order or to command. So the monarchy, the inevitability of the system, and the ability to command are all going down, man. Whoa. Okay. So either way, the king and the queen are rearranging deck chairs on their Titanic and also admonishing the deck chairs for not being good enough deck chairs. Yep. Absolutely. But a big part of their criticism of the hunters and why it is blatantly, obviously misguided is that what they're ripping into is experience, is the actual, I've been out there and I've seen these things with my own eyes. And yeah, uh, Crow advises them not to send out the Royal Galleon. It's not built for bringing down enormous leviathans. Absolutely. It's going to suffer and, as a and result. And this idea that theoretically... Oh, specifically, it's not about 
you're not going to do a good enough job. Crow actually says the sailors on that ship will die as a result. Mm. Like he's actually concerned about human life here. He is he becomes the villain of this piece, but he's not just straight out black-hearted evil. No, and the and one of the the key scenes in the film is where they they go up against this this white whale that or red whale which um good check there crow has been hunting all this time and there's a moment when it becomes apparent that despite all of their planning and prep despite their experience and skill in spite of all of that things are still going to fuck up that they can they can do exactly what they are supposed to do and it can still fall apart and the advantage that the crew of the inevitable have over the military who who've never been in that situation before is they know that they know that what you have to look out for is the moments when things start to go south and you you might not be able to do anything to pull it back but if you miss the moment, you're definitely not going to be able to. Crow goes out to prove that they can absolutely bring down the red bluster, the the, the big one, the, the one that no one can catch. And so that becomes his Moby Dick. That becomes his, if I can't catch this one, not only am I finished, because he's two days from retirement anyway, but the future that I had hoped for, for all of these people that I've been looking after the souls of for all these years, is dispensed with. We're all going to have to find new jobs. Mm. Also, um, think about what the word bluster means. It's the shaggy dog story. It's the fish was this big story. It's the bullying the situation. Blowing something out of proportion. beyond its proportion. Good Lord. They are good with their words. Whoever wrote this, the vocabulary that they have worked with is really impressive. I kind of want to see that uh, 2013 play about sneaking into an explorer's Well, I did anyway. I know. (laughs) Bloody on stage things, hard to find. Anybody film it? Anyone Anyone got a copy of that? No, not allowed. That's why. We can find out what it's called and track it down on YouTube. The magic of impermanent performance. Anyway. Ten-ish year old Maisie Brumble, that's just an estimation. Her parents were hunters. She's living in an orphanage, a children's home. It's very cheery. And uh, they served on the monarch that Sharon uh, mentioned. The monarch went down with all hands and her parents perished. But they were from themselves a long line of hunters. And Maisie is really up for going out there and hunting them monsters. She's never done it herself, but she's read a lot of books. An enormous amount of propaganda anti-monster literature and uh, she's all fired up and she kind of wants like her idea is I'm going to run away from this orphanage which is you know kind to her she's telling the kids a bedtime story about a a terrible monster and then the mother superior comes in and and tells her to go but everyone to go back to bed and then she's like right and now according to plan here's what I do like her plan was I'm going to attract the attention of the woman who runs this place piss her off tonight then I'm going to run away Yes, and that's as she goes, somebody comments, we'll see you in the morning, meaning she's done this before yeah. and she always gets found and returned. That is a sweet moment. There is a, re- it's a, a seed planted by how this scene opens, by the way, which is that Maisie is an orphan herself, mm. reading supposed history to a group of orphans from a book that we later find out to be largely bullshit. There's something significant there about hearing history from people who weren't there, which orphans are 
kind of stuck with. They're not, at least in this scenario, they are not going to hear their family histories from their families because their families are no longer with them. Yeah. Uh, notably, there's a one scene which we uh, missed out at the beginning, at the very uh, start. Uh, Jacob is a little child clinging to a piece of driftwood after a ship has been entirely wrecked. Might, in fact, even have been the monarch. Possibly so. And it's around the time that Captain Crow discovers him, but there is... It feels very much like Will Turner at the beginning of Pirates of the Caribbean being found just as the uh, Black Pearl disappears. Yeah. But that elaborates on that theme I was talking about because as an orphan himself, yeah. Jacob is never going to know the truth of what happened to his parents, but he will know what Crow feeds him. And he's been grown up for at least the past 20 years or so with Crow basically just teaching him to be his replacement. Indeed. But the version of propaganda that he's got from Crow and from the people surrounding him on the inevitable... Is at least based on day-to-day activity. Exactly. It's, it's based on these are the things that we observe when we go out and get involved in this shit. When he reads the books that Maisie is so attached to, mm. it challenges and, and um, contradicts his personal experiences. So that's the first thing that he gets that sort of tells him, hang on a minute, mm. this might not be entirely what I was led to believe. And there are many, many parallels between this and things that I've written for New Century. So my guess is that Chris picked up on several of them and thought, Alex would like this, Alex and Sharon would like this. Oh, Alex Sharon and Willow would like this. <laughs> so in this case, uh, much like in Panthersol, there's this little street urchin turns up and starts, in order to ingratiate herself upon this adventurer, she insults the shit out of him by uh, saying, oh, Captain, maybe someday. Okay, I'll go and talk to the actual Captain now, shall I? And so he thrusts her in the back of a, uh, a cart and uh, asks the, uh, uh, the carriage driver to drop her off at Kingston, where uh, her orphanage is. Kingston. Yes, most of these are made-up names. All names are made up. And asks the carriage driver to drop her off at Keyston, which is where she came from. She shrieks at him through the window that this is kidnapping. He says it's the opposite of kidnapping. Technically, it is actually still kidnapping. But because he expresses that his intentions are to, for her to be as far away from him as possible and back where she belongs, her intentions to not be where she is supposed to be, according to society, kind of don't enter into it. Ergo, it's a grey area of the uh, law courts. Indeed. I find myself wondering, by the way, because we never learned the truth of this, did she escape from Rosie, or did she persuade Rosie to put her on the ship? It's the second one. <laughs> and we were robbed of a scene. But... We were. We were. And since there are a very limited amount of clips from the Sea Beast on YouTube, here for your listening pleasure is the debut of our child Willow Shaw, who has played cameos before in New Century, but this is their first leading role. And it's in Panther Soul, and they play the extremely cheeky Lynx thief, Leah. Do you know what this thing is, you big lug? She asks casually. Yeah, I know what it is. It's mine. Oh, so you can read the map. Go on. And recognize the places it's pointing to? And, of course, once you get there, you'll be able to understand all the traps that are on there, too. Tell me, then. No, I don't think I will. She replies, dragging the first word out and shrugging whilst hefting the ball. You see, you have great big fat paws, big and clumsy, but look at this. She works her lithe little pads deftly, and with a series of clicks and presses, she rearranges the plates on one section of the surface of the ball to create a symbol that I can't quite make out from over here. There is a look on her pink furred and speckled face, 
a defiance I find familiar. She continues and then mimes more rapport at me. I think what she is saying is very rude. I play along, eyeballing her ragged clothes and malnourished appearance. Then what makes you think you can tell me more about it than a dealer of antiquities like this guy? Oh, I don't know. Perhaps I can tell you how. Once we're halfway across the Majara Desert, and we stop in at the Temple of... What's that, Kurunchi? Here, she listens intently to the Reptor on her shoulder, as though it was speaking to her. <laughs> You're right, I've said too much. She raises her paw to her forehead in mock remorse. Is that part of what you read from it? I mouth towards Maximus. The Lynx girl nods before he is able to respond. Are you taking this creaky old fellow with you? The cub pirouettes idly. We'd race you there, you motley pair. But I'd be fully grown before you show up, bald of hair, to see me on my throne. <laughs> She's just as much of an arrogant tosser as you are. That does it. A smile spreads across my face and I have to chase it away fiercely to regain control. Oh, fine. What do you want? My throne, like I said. I just need a bodyguard to get me there. <coughs> oh, and you feeders as well, too. Thanks, Crunchy, good point. <coughs> this cub is out of her mind. So that was a clip from my current audio drama, Panther Soul, available on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed. At time of recording, we're on chapter 24 out of 33. But I've heard tell it's so compelling, you'll catch up very, very fast. And then be badgering me for the new episodes. But the point I was making is that the relationship between Leah and Colo Nash that you just heard the beginning of was what the relationship between Maisie and Jacob in The Sea Beast reminded me the most of. And so she stows away on the inevitable uh, with Captain Crow at the uh, helm and uh, kind of ingratiates herself on the rest of the crew by not insulting them and just telling them how awesome they are. Mm. This builds up an adversarial uh, context between her and our established... Not exactly hero, he's a bit of a himbo. Really, it's more of a case of this guy is a professional, he knows what he's doing, but he, much like this little kid, has to slowly adjust to his worldview being opened up to more information. Indeed, and while he is nowhere near as fluid with that as Maisie proves to be, he is certainly a as lot more flexible aunt. with it than Crow. Yeah. Also notable, Maisie is a little girl of colour and she gravitates towards Sarah Sharp, the first mate who is a hunter of colour, played by, as I mentioned before, Marianne Jean-Baptiste of Secrets and Lies and Magnolia. I noticed this time it took me several glances to see what the actual deal was with this. She has what appears to be a wooden leg in a beautiful spiral shape. It's a narwhal horn. I love that. Okay. And Sarah treats the child with kind of a... A slight reserve, but what does she do with this over-enthusiastic stowaway? Well, the first thing she does is arm her. Oh yeah, gives her a massive knife. No, 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 gives her a small knife. Gives her a massive knife to a small kid. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Although she she later decides it should have been bigger. Yeah. But uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But it's a, a plot load-bearing knife. It's it an is. important uh, uh, knife for uh, Maisie to have. She ultimately uh, chooses to use it on at least two occasions uh, to, to save lives. Yeah, and very specifically, the knife comes to represent what Maisie is able to do. Three in occasions. Terms, yeah. Sorry. What Maisie is able to do in terms of impact on the world, which is that she has a... Like, there's one thing she can do with this knife, and it takes her ages. It's almost always to cut binding ropes exactly. that are about to yeah. hurt somebody. So she's nibbling away at these cords that are holding the situation together so that she can stop it. 
but that even that small ability was handed to her by this woman who is everything she's ever wanted to be and it kind of I wish I was that... gruff and surly like you well, but yeah. I'm so gabby I don't know how it can ever happen absolutely but the the fact that she's sort of she idealizes these parents that she's lost Sarah makes a brilliant replacement for that even though she doesn't really give her any kind of maternal or paternal nourishment or nurture or anything like that she does give her a really fucking important tool that ends up being the thing that saves the day at least from Maisie's perspective some might even call it a Guillermo del Toro style totem well indeed and it is replicated by the fact that Sarah has a much bigger knife of her own in fact she's got loads of them we need to talk about the way this film is photographed because my goodness me the world itself reminds me of the whale oil-powered gas lamp fantasy of the Dishonored video game series. Do you remember that one? I do. You're sneaking around, there's like clockworky, steampunky aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a bit more grim than this. This this world is somehow more magnificent and beautiful. First thing I noticed, and the first note I made was, okay, so they've got water down, like oh, they've absolutely. got the ocean down. That was the first thing I noted, noted down. Water, fabric textures and hair in this are amazing. You would expect nothing less from one of the uh, co-creators of Moana, but um, he was involved in the uh, project. But it feels like the graphic artists have now got water down so well, that's the one thing we can now bank on actually looking exactly right. Yeah. It was one of the things that took the longest to get right, because mm -hmm. like it, it was always a little too... Gelatinous? Yes. That word? Like yeah. it, it would sploosh and splash like it was, uh, like there was gelatin in it. Yeah. It's, right, the reason why water, and I know Dan's talked about this before when we've discussed animated movies, the reason why water and fire and smoke and things that contain a lot of particles are very difficult to replicate, or at least were extremely hard to get right early on in the CG mm. game, is because they do their own thing. And when you have to program, everything it does you can't it feels get more steered and less exactly. like it's free flowing yeah it's like when um uh, cg artists are doing huge backdrops a an individual person cannot possibly think of all the little imperfections that make something look real it's just not possible so when it, it looks better when you have multiple people working on it or doing whatever it is that they've managed to get the, the system to do now that will animate that water in a way that feels natural because you never know what it's going to do but in terms of the actual framing like the the the, the elements of it are they've all got down in a very secure fashion so like we know what they're putting on screen is convincing enough in this slightly stylized somewhat homogenized animation style as in like it looks like most animated films look superficially moment. yes i would say this though there were moments where if it weren't for the fact that the human characters were stylized mm. it would have felt almost photorealistic so this was really the place to take uh, Image Movers Digital's performance capture stuff. Just like, you know, it, it was going for the same level of we want it to feel like real people in a real world, but then they just stylize them slightly, give them more sort of blocky bodies and a slightly more of a Dorito shape for the men. and Indeed. But I think one of the things that makes the world feel more bright and more optimistic than something like Dishonored is the presence of these beasts, that you have these huge blocks of colour 
that move across the ocean and, and from a, a safe enough distance look so incredibly majestic. That is in massively inspiring, no pun intended. I feel like if there were beasts like this in Dishonored, that they would be like the Colossi from Shadow of the Colossus, but clockwork. Yeah, and there's, there is a delightful lack of tentacles. Like, I think there's one or two that are obviously the bad guy creatures that have tentacles, but most of them, it's it's more like whale shapes and things. As soon as I saw those tentacles, my brain started going, dun, 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 dun. Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean series were pretty effective at summing up in our heads what it's like the Jurassic Park of pirate films like the, when you think of dinosaurs if mostly your brain will either go to the books you read when you were a kid or to a Jurassic Park yeah maybe to some obscure thing like a, a, a the walking with dinosaurs on the BBC but like but but that you do get these big properties that pick up on a particular concept and while it and maintain it huge success with it absolutely. and become the the arbiters of that one thing. Absolutely. And while it may not necessarily be that they then become the only IP that's working with that. Oh, everyone thing, knows about Carnosaur. But it feels like they are. Theodore Rex. And whatever else you see where they turn up, that's what you'll think of. We're back a dinosaur story. Indeed. But the good dinosaur. Yeah. What I'm getting at is the cinematography in Pirates of the Caribbean was pretty great. Gore Verbinski is a solid director with a very evocative gothic style. Darius Wolski was the cinematographer on most of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, as well as The Crow in Dark City. There isn't a single frame in any of those films that can come close to this film at its best. You could go through this film and just pause every few minutes and you might well find yourself looking at something utterly breathtaking in still motion. And likewise, as the film's moving through, it is beautifully captured. The sense of scale is paid particular attention to. We've got the grand scale of these giant beasts and then frequently center giving that scale to the beasts. We've got the humans dwarfed by this massive, uncontrollable situation of conflict that they can't affect with their tiny little locus of influence. They are, as well as being like a collective, the beasts are all distinct enough that they feel like individuals, but individuals that are so huge that they're representative of, of an other, that it's very easy for the monarchy to continue to other and to reinforce you'll never understand them they'll never understand us they are just a threat They've it also... is not in their interests for there to be any kind of comprehension or attempt to understand or, or frame in a way that is these creatures are a natural part of the world quite the opposite they took a leaf out of Guillermo del Toro's book from Pacific Rim regarding kaiju and the best Godzilla films Ergo, these things break frame. They are too big to contain in that regard. They knew it was coming to Netflix and that would be the way that most people would see it. So it's not formatted so that big tentacles come out at you in 3D, which often at times has the reverse effect of making everything seem like it's small and containable within a box. Mm. And they also move incredibly slowly to emphasize their size, which 
I saw a fascinating YouTube video uh, uh, a few days ago about how different animals perceive the world and in, in many cases it's, it pertains to size, but ultimately a fly lives life like Quicksilver. So everybody moving around the fly is like a kaiju. That's why we can't smack our hand on them. Because they see us Because they like see it. us coming for ages. <sighs> and they're like, you slow motherfucker. You you think you're actually fine. Okay, off I'm I just go. gonna see, I'm gonna let you almost get me. Now I'm gone. <laughs> Little bastards. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately their, their perception of the world, because they only live a short while, it goes on and on for them. Ultimately this is, it's, it's something that, it's different for dogs, it's different for cats again, and that's alienating when you aren't thinking from someone else's perspective. Because their language, their physical language doesn't seem to correspond with yours. Mm. Yeah, so if we translate that into these great beasts seeing the world, their world, the, the ocean and the, the unchangingness of the horizon is in sync with their speed. But when we appear over the, uh, over the threshold and start coming at them, that then speeds everything up to a hyper uncomfortable level. This is actually making me think, okay, you know how when I get an anxiety attack and the, my frontal lobe effectively feels like someone's thrown bees into it and everything is just buzzing around like this. This is how these poor bastards must feel. No wonder they're like launching themselves at you. They, have, they feel like they've got literally nothing else they can do. There is a mystifying bit of um, visual storytelling at the beginning. Crow gets dragged down by a beast and he's deep underwater and he's trying to saw off the, uh, the end of the horn so he can bring it back as a trophy. He then disengages himself and starts swimming upwards towards the boat and a tentacle reaches out and grabs him. And then he starts getting dragged down and he is like, the camera's on his face as he gets, like, as he slowly descends. He may as well be tied to a piano at that point. And I was like, okay, so, so Crow is now dead and Jacob has to run the ship. And then Crow wakes up on the deck, but we've not seen a situation where Jacob jumped into the water. No one's anywhere near him. He is far from rescue. So it transitions from absolute certain death to, and luckily he's okay. And mystifyingly, this bit is never revisited. Mm. It would make perfect sense to flash back to it and show the tentacle unlatching from his leg and letting him float back up. At the end, show us that. It's baffling that they don't because I was like for a, for a minute or so the first time I watched it I was like so this is a dream right he's not actually alive anymore or we're gonna find out how so I just I do wonder why they went to such trouble to put him in an absolutely fatal situation and then hand waved it in a transition hmm. it exacerbates his feelings of urgency of having to get this shit done because it happens at the beginning and uh, it, it gives him much more of a sense of his own mortality which makes sense but it could also be used to then show that he wasn't paying attention to the actuality of the scenario Absolutely, yeah. so it's not really a criticism so much as a suggestion for an extension Instead of doing your snip, snip, edit, it's a, here's a little bit of connective tissue that you might want to slide into there. Yeah. So 
what actually then happens is they find the red bluster and uh, it crow fastens the ship to it and it then commences a whirlpool as the beast swims round and round dragging the ship down and very significantly after we'd been shown that crow was worried about a bunch of sailors he'd never met before potentially coming a cropper in a ship that is not meant for hunting sea beasts as opposed to the inevitable which sits very low in the water and has emergency measures for setting itself back upright some of them including depth charges he effectively sidelines his entire crew whom he lives for out of a desperation to land this particular one and the you know a, a very heavy rope flings itself across the deck and there's someone in the crow's nest is about to uh, uh, get brought down by this rope and that's when Maisie breaks out of her cabin and uses the knife to cut through that rope and set free the people who are endangered by it and effectively relinquish the hold on the beast to save the crew. Notably, she and Jacob are then flung into the ocean and Crow is enraged with both of them and points a gun at them in a kind of obsessive, you ruin my How chance to catch this thing. Yeah. It's also notable that there's a moment when Jacob goes to stop her, then realizes she's doing the right thing. He doesn't help her, but he also doesn't hinder her. And that's sort of his his position in this fulcrum of, of societal change that kind of rolls on from this point. That puts Jacob in support of her rather than her in support of Jacob because she's the one Absolutely. going into action. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. As and then, opposed to the the moment the moment that mirrors that at the end where she is actively assisted by Sarah. Yeah. And then while they're underwater, this giant red beast with these like yellow snake-looking eyes, this enormous thing is staring at them and then swallows them whole. And I was like muttering to Willow, okay, so they're now stuck in Jabu Jabu's belly. And Willow groaned because this was the part of Ocarina of Time that they hated the most because they were stuck there for potentially years. They were trying to get, they kept going back to it and going, I don't know where I am, let me out of this fucking fish. And we just watched a whole load of Pinocchio. So I was almost out of the belly of the whale scenes. Luckily it doesn't uh, take way too long, but uh, it, it does. It is a useful way of getting both of them to accept that they're about to die, and that anything else that happens after this is bonus it's a time. Bonus, yeah. <laughs> Just to focus on that for a moment, what is the symbolic meaning of being in the belly of the whale from a hero's journey perspective? It makes you stop and think, right? Yeah, it, it puts you in a position where you can't do anything to influence it. I know some of you hate the hero's journey, just let it ride. It's, it's just a framework, that's all. Um, but yeah, you're in a position where you can't really do anything. You're still alive. You have whatever resources went in there with you. But stuff is going on in the world around you that you are now totally separated from and can't affect. So it's kind of a, a, a moment to ferment plans and take stock of your situation so that when the whale throws you up or sneezes or you out choose or a way to get out of the yeah whale. there is a way to get out of it you are then ready to pick yourself up and, and move on hmm. 
Uh, it's also often twinned with the meeting of the goddess, where it's specifically not that you're held captive, but they meet, that's where you actually want to stay. And in some versions of Pinocchio that we watched, we didn't mention this, Geppetto goes, let's just stay, it's fine. You know, we got fish. We mentioned that, but that is ultimately the meeting with the goddess in the belly of the whale and going, we can start a new life under the, the sea. sea. <laughs> but father... You keep saying, Geppetto, you're going to start a new life under the sea. It's not going to happen. Not with that attitude. But father, have you forgotten drinking water? We've got rum. Why is the rum always gone? <sighs> Sooner or later, the oxygen's going to run out. Yeah. Probably not before Geppetto dies of old age, but there it is. Oh, also, that monstro's breath, my god. My god. Mm. Also, Pinocchio's made of pine. If he is damp, he is not going to last long. Oh, it's going to look like one of Davy Jones's boys. Yeah. Anyway, they are taken to an island where there are a bunch of other monsters hanging around. It's almost like... Uh, Skull Island, but cute. Mm. There's a lot fewer monsters than you might imagine, and it feels like they could have made a rather weighty point of this a little too early in the film. Maisie finds a little blue type thing, which is almost, it feels like... It looks like Stitch. It's like a contractual obligation at this point. You've got to put a cute thing in there. But, like, back in the day, it was so that you could make toys out of it. Now it's just because that's appealing. But he does serve a purpose, Mm -hmm. narratively. Uh, in fact, he serves two. One, he is part and parcel of the look at the monsters on and around this island. Are they really all that threatening? Mm. Two is Jacob says he's useless. You can't keep him. He saves Maisie's life. He basically acts like a flotation device when she falls into the water. And while he's clearly not swimming, because his arms are not up to that particular task, he floats her up to the top. So he is useful and harmless. Mm. And he's evidence that your take on monsters may be misguided. If you're a fan of water-type Pokemon, this is the movie for you, by the way. That is, I mean, uh, once you've finished watching Avatar 2. Yes, indeed. There's also the fact that uh, Maisie uses him in her development of a, a... What's the best way to frame this? A a gesture and demonstration language that she develops with (laughs) Red. This is another thing that uh, I uh, found particularly appealing and ties in with something that I took extensive time to uh, craft in uh, previous books. That is nonverbal communication and meeting a giant scary beast that then saves your life because accordingly, a giant enemy crab attacks and Red... Now, now so named by uh, Maisie, defends them Godzilla style, and it's a really appealing kind of on the beach in the shallow waters kaiju battle in slow mo. It's yeah. great, yeah. and the giant enemy crab does have a weak spot that you can hit for massive damage. Apparently, it's the eyelid. Ow. Oh no, they, they get with the spear just, just under underneath the, arm, the armor, don't they? Yeah. But they use the, Maisie uses his eyelid to kind of pull him. Yeah. Pull him back. The um, stages of the game will also be based on famous battles which took, actually took place in ancient Japan. So here's this giant enemy crab, and you attack its weak point for massive damage. Ask your parents about the Sony E3 presentation 2006. But yeah, the, the way that she figures out to communicate with Red, language is not going to help them at this point. Spoken language is not going to help because anything they say is going to be meaningless to Red. It's just... Even when Jacob tries, his random pointing mm. doesn't 
doesn't tell her anything that, that she can frame in a way that she can comprehend. What Maisie elects to use is show. Physicality. Absolutely. She will literally act out what she wants Red to do and use these sort of little representative objects like blue or a coconut or, you know, anything that, that looks like the thing she... Because what the monster can do is observe and make connections. They can effectively use what you're building as a frame of reference to, to what they know of the world. Absolutely. There are other YouTube videos. I'm, 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 this episode is brought to you by informative YouTube videos uh, where you can learn how English sounds to uh, people who do not speak English as their first language. And it's a really neat way of, of showing how standing in restaurants, waving your arms about and shouting different English words makes you look like a prat and doesn't actually help the situation. Absolutely. All around the mass protection town, well, I for mass the Pope for cream, and, and once for why I chose farine and all, once for why I bleed the whole chase between. You want to get, you want to get for what? But also there are videos of how dogs hear us and what they comprehend. And oh, wow, good girl. <laughs> uh, there's a Frasier bit where uh, Niles and Fra Frasier are talking and Eddie hears the word Eddie and that's the only word he comprehends in a bunch of garbled nonsense mm, yeah. because it's a frequent word and it means him. Do you honestly believe he can understand a word you're saying? Hey, I read somewhere dogs can understand up to 400 words. Now, a super smart dog like Eddie probably knows a thousand. Oh, really, Dad? Yes, really. Eddie understands a hell of a lot more than you give him credit for. Yeah, well, just yesterday, I said, Eddie, I've lost my keys. And he looked up at me. And Eddie. 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 Yada, 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 yada. Eddie. Yada, 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 yada. Oh, yada, 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 yada. Eddie. Yeah. anything other than the simple fact of his name or a grunt. Dog psychiatrist? And then the same principle is applied to Marty Crane, who is a fully functional human being, but whose eyes glaze over when his sons indulge in shop talk. Honestly, Dad, they are the very definition of charlatanism. You simply cannot apply the principles of human psychology to animal behavior. Precisely. Animals operate out of instinct, whereas human beings can reason. Yes. They can cogitate. Yes. Therefore, a human being, through analytical psychotherapy, can... Dad. Dad. Well, it's the intrinsic value in what It doesn't even necessarily have to go with not comprehending a language. I have uh, some issues with sound processing. Yeah. And as a result, I will. There's, there's a phenomenon where, which you may have noticed when you walk past a group of people who are talking and you hear like half of a sentence and then half of a different sentence and then you walk away. What you've heard them say just sounds like noise. Mm. It doesn't mean anything to you. So a lot of the time I will hear that around me because it takes my brain a few seconds to actually piece together the sounds my ears have heard into language my brain can comprehend. Not all the time, but when it happens, it's quite noticeable. And it can be quite frustrating, to be honest. But it's like that writ large. It, it, if you're deciphering something that's visual, sometimes that will click faster than deciphering something that you're hearing. Yeah, the concept of communication absolutely captivates me. I wrote an entire book, Tiger's Eye, wherein the key premise was a giant cat and a human developing their own new form of communication based on commonalities they both understand. Light, heat, water, hunger, fear. 
I wrote it as a counterpoint to the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who famously said, if a lion could speak, we could not understand him. What my book presupposes is, maybe we could. So in Tiger's Eye, Miguel is lost and very far from his version of Earth. And my huntress, Harau, takes responsibility for him, which necessitates that they start to communicate beyond their own spoken languages so that they could connect and survive and accomplish a goal to get him home. And the language they develop becomes rapport, which Leah the Lynx Thief was speaking earlier in Panthasol. Because in my books, the thing that will save each species is communication. We craft and share more new words with each other. The help sign becomes laying one open paw on the other, crossed and pads up. Food is still simply pointing at one's mouth. Drink is miming a canteen. Listen is holding a paw up to the right ear. Smell is touching one's nose. Look is two pads pointed to your eyes and then at what's to be looked at. In response to his cat sign with whiskers, I create one for the creature he is. There are many names I consider applying to his kind in my own tongue. Roundheads, no-tails, furless. However, I ultimately settle on straight legs. I indicate this to him by drawing myself up to my full height and walking around a little awkwardly. No wonder they are so easy to push over. Thus the sign becomes a pad drawn in a swift line from the hip to the knee. If you go to YouTube, you'll find plenty of videos from usually younger presenters who go, aha, I've spotted 15 things that this has in common with how to train your dragon. And because you have to put a question in the thumbnail, is it just a copy? No, it's not. It goes way further. But the fact that Red looks like Toothless, like an enormous, smooth, palette-swapped version of Toothless with teeth extended, is almost a way to get the audience who've seen those films on board and say, you're in a very similar territory here. But what a lot of these young'uns don't notice are the various other influences coming into play. When Jacob and Maisie are nestled inside Red, it's the giant snail shell from the Christopher Plummer Dr. Doolittle film from 1967. That's the one where, as Lindsay Ellis said, filming was very challenging, not least of all the point where the giraffe stepped on his own penis. And while, yes, the water looks just as lovely as Moana and the CG artists have got water down, little things we take absolutely for granted took a lot more to get right. Wet ropes are as difficult to animate in a realistic way as wet hair, and the fact that we didn't notice them suggests that they were actually done very, very well. The production team worked with professional sailing advisors mimicking the buoyancy of the ocean internally within the animation, so since most of the film takes place on ships and on the ocean, there's that subtle bobbing sensation. And we don't notice it because we have seen so many live-action films shot on ships. But there was no ship. There was no ocean. This was entirely animated. They snuck reality past us so that we could focus on the story. This is why I'm always very wary of saying something is a copy and that's all. It's superficial. I will only usually say that if I have looked and looked and looked for substance below that particular observation and found very little. The fax machine is nothing but a waffle iron with a phone attached. And there is absolute validity in retelling an already established story with a different focus. 
In this case, there was no blaming the Vikings, but that's not the sea beast. This is around about the same time that they've got a lot of downtime and uh, Maisie's still got her uh, books and Jacob starts leafing through them and it feels like you wouldn't have read any of these uh, uh, over the years, but at the same time, no, he wouldn't. No, all the books they had were in Crow's cabin. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's, he's reading the stories and, and, and finding that they're, they're somewhat misrepresentational. And this is around the period that the ball drops on the actual, the plot that we felt under the surface is literally revealed to us as uh, they need to get a lift to another island across the sea so that they can charter a ship and, and, and get back to, um, I want to say Port Royal. Three Bridges. Three Bridges. Which, by the way, every time they said that, Three Bridges was a little town not far from where I used to live in Oxted. So I'm like, oh, we are going to go to Three Bridges. It's like... Uh, we lived there. It's a suburb of Crawley. Oh, God, yeah, we did, yeah. It's rather like, and I've already used this once in the past few weeks, I'm going to take you to Paramus, New Jersey. We'll go to the quick stop where Dante is working. He's not even supposed to be here today. But one of uh, Red's strange abilities is that uh, they can perch in her nostrils and see out as though through a viewing window on a submarine. One assumes something to do with air, hand wave it, it doesn't matter because it thus gives them a view of after the, she comes gracefully swimming through these giant fronds just floating, just to, to really remind you of the beauty of the ocean. Which, by the way, I felt like going to Avatar after this, it felt like, yeah, I've seen Under the Sea, it's gorgeous. Um, but we look down into a graveyard, and there's this is after Maisie's been wandering all over Red's back, pulling out these spiked harpoons yep. that are sticking this in there. This is the removing the thorn from the lion's paw mm. from the... It's an Aesop's fable, isn't it? Yeah. And we see... Much alike, the interlaced ribcage bones and rotted timbers of dead carcasses of sea beasts and dead carcasses of shipwrecks and rusted harpoons everywhere and tall masts without sails that resemble cross crucifixes, at, at, you know, leaning at an angle to illustrate how untended this area is. And it's just they're going across a battlefield of constant bloodshed where all the dead are dead alike and effectively have been forgotten in the swage of history. And it's the sobering moment that, I mean, even... How to Train Your Dragon never had a, a moment like this that just doesn't pull its punches regarding the perpetuation of mindless violence and bloodshed. Yeah. This film has several such moments. Some of them are more subtle, but yeah. there's a few of them. When we get to the end, I will specifically hone in on where this film goes beyond what Disney does. Now, in the meantime, and this is another thing that feels like some of my work, uh, voraciously still seeking the red bluster and believing Jacob to be dead, having been swallowed by the beast, Captain Crow has gone off to find a sea witch, previously mentioned, named Gwen Batterby. And again, I feel like they put so much into this character that the fact that she's on screen for 82 seconds was, was kind of baffling to me because I was like, I feel like there's a whole thing that's going to unfold here. She's, she offers him this incredibly powerful poison and a weapon with which to administer it, this really uh, cruel, barbed, super-powered harpoon cannon, and a warning that it comes with a terrible cost. And Captain Crow says what everyone says in trailers regarding, you know, 
what am I going to have to give for this? Of which there is literally only one answer, and the only reason you asked is so that that one answer could be delivered, and that is... EVERYTHING! And the response to that should be, you know what? No, actually, everything sounds like a bit much. A little bit. Thank you. Indeed. Um, the... The framing of the sea witch being sort of this incredibly dangerous individual, by the way, there's something and specific. white, notably as well. Well, indeed, there's something specific about the 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 weapons she offers that kind of show a little bit of a backstory for her. It's tiny, don't get me wrong, but here's the thing: if somebody is dealing with poisons, then that means that at some point they had training as a healer, because if you know poisons, you, you know, know medicines. And you deliberately chose this fork, and that the, what she says about the the cost of doing business with her is you get exactly what you ask for, but you never see a good day after, is because having got exactly what you ask for, you then have to live with the fact that you used something that you knew you shouldn't. It's a poison blade that works both ways. Yeah, you poison yourself. Then comes the inevitable darkest crisis point when our human heroes have started to work out the perpetuating interspecies war which hurts both sides. This is when they reach Rumpepper Island and the Royal Galleon piloted by Sir Barely Appearing in this film, Dan Stevens, your mate, and they go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Red who just sees that ship and goes in for the attack rather than Red going, oh, and we're gonna be coming out of this, Red goes in for the kill. Which she might not have done had it not been for the presence of Maisie and Jacob, who she has now appointed herself the protector of. The irony being that in the attacking of this ship, Maisie becomes injured by musket fire. And musket fire is so wild and Im imprecise, it's almost astonishing that they managed to injure anyone. But the point is, guns come out and a little girl is hurt. And another thing that Disney don't do, when uh, Jacob tends to her, he holds up his hand and it is soaked in her blood. Absolutely, and that's one of the other moments that I was referencing earlier. Yeah, and much like uh, Dean in The Iron Giant shouts the, to the giant to go away as soon as uh, Hogarth becomes injured, Jacob sends Red off in a kind of, be being around you has caused harm Yeah, I mean, there's, ultimately there's a combination of things going on here. One, he can't communicate with Red as well as Maisie can. He needs to be mm. extreme in the way he acts. And she's now unconscious, so he can't have the acting conscience. Absolutely. Two, he needs to get Red away for her own good, because she's in danger if she sticks around. Mm. Three, as long as she's there, the Navy are going to keep firing at her, which means that Maisie and Jacob are further in danger. And four, he can't get Maisie to safety and to help until Red is gone and the army, the, the Navy stop launching volleys at them. Either way, him telling her to go is de-escalation. So he's on the right track. Yeah. It's he's, just that he's, he's just very limited he's in very terms blunt of on how to do the it. tools he has to do it with and the time and level of safety that he has to... And relative inexperience in de-escalation, he actually went, he was unable to act while Maisie earlier was cutting that rope, mm. de-escalating. Yeah. If you've been taught to be a hammer your entire life. And at this precise darkest point, Captain Crow turns up on the inevitable and badly wounds Red with the aforementioned venomous and cursed harpoon. 
effectively knocking Red out and dragging her back through the ocean. Crow seems intent. He gives a, a, a little speech to Jacob while Maisie gets a blood transfusion. And again, I, I love that. I love alternate history stuff where they can start playing with things like, well. We don't actually have an exact year for this. It's maritime. So let's just go ahead and say they did blood transfusions back then. There's something very specific about the blood transfusion. It's as from well. Jacob. It's from Jacob, which yeah. means that the this this is kind of all he has at this stage to reach back in response to a conversation Maisie had with him earlier where she was trying to reach out to And he to mentions form... he's a universal donor. <laughs> he has it tattooed on his back. <laughs> There is a tattoo there. It might be. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, she's trying to form a familial bond with him mm. in the same way that, like, there's there's a lot going on in here about family being through chance and choice mm. rather than simply um, a, a case of who you're born to. But by giving Maisie his blood, he has literally connected them now with with actual blood. Nice. And uh, Crow is also seemingly dead set on this crusade, like this is not going to be enough. He'll take Red back to port and then journey straight back out there again because he's now on for the long haul. That's the poison working away. Exactly, and that's the thing. His, Red was his whole, like we said, the red whale this is the thing he's always been after his idea was once he'd caught that he'd he'd done his duty and it was time to lay down his particular ship's wheel and hand it on to someone else but he's now been put in a position where he's got to keep proving himself if you've caught the red bluster what the hell else is there out there for you to do? But also the person he was going to pass it on to, Jacob, he thought he was dead and now he comes back and now he's arguing with him about their specific... And uh, rejecting the legacy that Crow wanted to give him. Yeah. And again, this is the, the deal he signed with the Sea Witch. I'm re I, I love the idea, not the actual, not the terrifying implications of it. I don't get pleasure from that, but it is spine tingling having deals made where you're giving something that you don't know how deep that particular cost is going to be. That's the thing with these when these kinds of things crop up in stories, usually what you are being asked to pay, you know exactly what it is on paper. Yeah. What you don't know is what it's actually going to cost you internally. The Angel of Death in Hellboy 2 immediately springs to mind, uh, but also there was a German TV show that was shown in the early 80s on children's BBC and then repeated again in the early 90s called Tim Taylor. And it was about a boy who meets a man known only as the Baron who turns up in a limousine and the Baron offers him a deal and he will give him the luck to win any bet that he places. But the thing he pays is his laugh. And that's riffed back on uh, by, uh, Neil Gaiman does this sort of thing all the time, but at the beginning of Stardust, Una says to uh, Dunstan Thorne that the payment for these might be the colour of your eyes or your memories before you were three. And I was like, just the abstraction of something that is inherently you to be traded away. Because Tim goes off and, and wins some Smurfs in a bet. Uh, but immediately regrets the fact that he now can't laugh. And it's uh, like the, the, he then goes off on this epic odyssey in order to find the Baron so he can get his laugh back. That's a, that's a 
thing. I love that kind of thing because it questions what it means to be alive and, and to interact with other people if you don't have certain aspects of what you consider to be you. Yeah, well, it's an expansion of the gilded cage as well, that, that you can live in luxury, but you are giving up your freedom because the luxury itself is a trap. And the words Crow uses are specifically that he seems intent on testing himself in order to define his existence, which I think plays into the idea of this can never end. Like Absolutely. Rather than it being something that he seeks to do, it's about challenging himself, which is a very selfish and obsessive way of living. Yeah. It's fine if you are able to marshal that and make sure that it doesn't hurt anybody else, but if you're literally Captain Ahab, you're gonna hurt other people with your obsession. Absolutely. And this is, it's something that crops up very frequently in therapy, particularly early on, where sometimes people don't have the ability to frame what they do and why they do it for themselves and they seek external validation and verification and structure and they need someone else to tell them what to do and how to do it and they don't necessarily know that that's what they're looking for but it's because they don't have this what's called an internal locus of evaluation something that they have created in themselves to point them in the right direction but the only way that you can work out which way to go some might call that a conscience yeah if, you, if that's the way you want to frame it. If it's it, the yeah. thing that specifically uh, uh, advises you on moral grounds regarding whether to do a thing and whether it will hurt people Yeah, or not. you point in a certain direction and something inside you goes, no, don't do that. Mm. Yeah, It absolutely. might be, for example, a cricket that lives inside the hollow where your heart was. Mm. Yeah, might be, might be. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, um, the problem with having an external locus of evaluation is that the only way that you can figure out your direction when that's all you have is to throw yourself against the walls of your existence to work out where they are and it, it means that you're inevitably going to end up bruising yourself and people around you and it also means that when the structure of what's around you is threatened that feels like a very personal threat because it's going to take or the, the way things are the way it's framed for you that's going to take away the thing that tells you how to move forward as they reach three bridges dragging this uh, sea beast with them still unconscious uh, there's a lingering shot of sort of as the camera climbs up to the spear point on this giant halberd carried by a statue and it's, it's metal at one end and it's glinting in the sun and horror movie framing tells you Something's going to end up on that. Yeah, indeed. Also, there's something very specific about why Crow has brought Red back to Three Bridges. In the past, they've always come back with horns or claws or teeth or something to show that they defeated what they defeated so that they can claim the bounty. But he is now trying to prove a point to the king and queen. He is trying to say, right, you've forgotten what we're actually hunting out there. You need to see this thing and recognize how dangerous it is so you know you need us. And that's why he's not administered the full dose of the poison that Gwen gave him because he wants to bring the Red Bluster back alive. Which plays into the ending, where Jacob has to stand against his father figure. They fight, and ultimately it's, 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 it's a straightforward, I won't let you kill this beast, which he's about to very performatively uh, for the king and queen, uh, with a giant harpoon. Again, there's this 
Ahab energy just bursting through him. And they fight, and it's the, it's the sort of fight we've uh, come to expect, but the important thing is not that. Red comes back around to consciousness and could go ballistic at this point and start smashing the place up. There is a giant arrangement of people who've all gathered to look at what the, the, what is happening. And the king and queen are very much destroy the beast right now. And the fact that it was not expected that it would be brought here directly in front of them, they're nervous about, you know, certain implications. Having to look the consequences of their actions in the eye? Oh, finally getting my comeuppance. <laughs> and... You did good, kid. In beautiful fashion. I ain't done. Maisie stands up on the uh, sea beast and speaks truth to power. She, she stands there, like, again, dwarfed by her surroundings, looking to all intents and purposes like the uh, little statue in, of the girl in front of the bull on Wall Street. Our books, our history is a lie. I don't believe the beast ever threatened our shores. It was just a story. A story told by them. <gasps> For generations, they've taught us to hate the beasts and sent the hunters out to destroy them. And the beasts learned to fear us and hate us. And they fought back! Who are you to malign your king and queen with such falsehoods? You have no right to speak- I have every right! I come from a long line of hunters that died your great death. Your kingdom was paid for with their blood. And their blood! Enough! General, give the command! war was started by the kings and queens what come before and with every lie their empire grew now this lot stands on the same perch and tells the same lies for their greed general let it end let it end Maisie says at the very beginning, I want to live a great life and die a great death. She's been fed the nationalist propaganda because it's always in service of something, which is always in service of, in this case, the crown, that dying for one's country is the greatest thing you could possibly so do. And you must... Great and noble thing to and die for the motherland. To die is specifically in bloody conflict with our enemies who would take away what it means to be us by snatching our women from their cabbage patches. And that's what happened to her parents. At this point, she's kind of like Steve Rogers. Where'd your father die of? Mustard gas. He was in the 107th Infantry. I was hoping I could be assigned. Your mother? She was a nurse in a TB ward. Got hit, couldn't shake it. Kind of trying to live up to their legacy, and she's also romanticized it for herself, but now it's just 
as poisonous as what uh, Battersby gives out. There's points where the king and queen are just kind of aghast, and they immediately demand fire on the peaceful beast, the weaponless man, and the child as they swim away to freedom. And the crowd are like, no, let them go. And so it's like they're losing the uh, will of the people, much like Commodus at the end of Gladiator. Yeah. It's, it's, uh... It is notable, by the way, that when the crowd starts to turn in Maisie's direction, mm-hmm. it's not an immediate thing. She's put this evidence in front of them. that This she's... beast is peaceful. Beast it's not peaceful. trying to kill There's anyone. There's a child and an unarmed man standing on its head, and it's not attacking them. Mm. It's not attacking the city. The pointy halberd does get brought out, uh, and it uh, when this was a Originally done, Jacob tries to break a spear over his thigh Mm. to illustrate we're not going to hunt anymore and it just really, really hurts. But this time the shaft is made of wood and he is able to make his point very visibly to the beast. That I really like as part of Jacob's character actually because it demonstrates that he is willing to keep making that same symbolic gesture even though it hurts him, even though the first couple of times it didn't work, he will keep doing it until it works. And she points out, like he he favours his thigh in a kind of an ow way later on and she goes, it hurts doesn't it? Yeah. And he says, yeah, but it was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah. Again, excellent use of language, excellent use of visual storytelling. Absolutely. But as the crowd shifts, it's it's a handful of people. It's the one at a time. It's a voice over here that says, I agree with her. It's a voice over here that says, no, don't attack her. It's a voice over here that says, we need to listen to her. Most of the crowd are just stood there going, we don't know what to do. It takes... Tell us where the status quo is going to be. It takes time for it to build to a point where enough people are in support of Maisie for the whole crowd to start to follow after her. And I will say this, it being a kid's movie, there's no riot. Because there would be some outliers in the crowd who are like, fuck no, we want to defend the thing we've been standing for for all this time. And unfortunately, that's why bringing down this kind of status quo in real life is not that easy. Maisie chooses her words very carefully. She specifically says that our people, these people, Mm. and the people we love die out there just to perpetuate the crown. What actually gets the crown in the end is they're going, fire upon them to the guards, and the captain of the guard, who is a Russian-sounding lady, says icily, my brother was on the monarch, and I want to know how this war started, which illustrates that there's way more beneath the surface of this, and ultimately it can be handled by people who actually know what they're doing, and the king and queen flee backwards into their palace, their power effectively evaporating You will notice there is no guillotine at the end of this movie. (laughs) Very merciful. (laughs) Indeed. But yeah, it it is kind of an idealistic conclusion in the sense that everyone sort of has this this recognition that things need to change. The fact that it moves towards questioning rather than unthinking revolution, I think is a positive. And while that may not be how things tend to happen in real life, stories are not about necessarily showing how things happen in real life. They're about presenting you with a model. Yeah. Exactly. Here's, here's you don't your go, image. well, this model of a church couldn't support itself if I push my hand on it. See, it yeah. breaks easily. But it, no, it's like, here's what you want to look like. Now let's see what steps we need to break that down into to get there. And the, the, the sort of the final conclusion being that people 
are able to recognise that they have everything they need right here. That the, the going out and questing over the sea and allowing that wide open space to be for the creatures that live there mm. is... Working with our planet? Yeah, absolutely. See this, see this environment? There is a way that we could move in harmony with it, just putting it out there. <laughs> We are seeing a lot of that lately, and I am that that pleases me. Again, it, each individual film doesn't necessarily have to change the world, but if there's a movement of media and storytelling that says, you know, we don't just have to do this one system all the time, yeah. especially once it's clearly shown its weaknesses and uh, how it will abandon us when things are at their absolute worst. Yeah, absolutely. That that maybe, just maybe, we do not have to be at the top of the food chain and in complete control of everything. Mm. Just putting it out there. So Maisie's parting words are not, let's tear this system down, it's, I'm going to live a great life. Noting the absence of and die a great death. So she and Jacob go off with Blue to start a family of their own, an oddball, ramshackle little peaceful trio. Mm. And Red is out there somewhere. They didn't go for the end bit where she's like riding on the dragon. And it's like, now we're riding them. They're our pets. So it goes one louder than How to Train Your Dragon, which does eventually reach that conclusion. It but it there, takes but three it goddamn does. films and several TV seasons to Indeed. get there. And watching the sea beast has put me in a nautical mood. So I can reveal to you now that this be the year on the 20th anniversary of the first one that we shall finally be tackling Pirates of the Caribbean. So we can all look forward to that, and I'll be thanking my favorite pirates, who keep our coffers generously stocked with doubloons. The old sea dog Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, the cabin boy Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, our lookout Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dachler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Feller What Winds the Anchor, Daniel Salguero, our giganto zoologist Dan Hepner, expert on all things kaiju, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, and Frankie Punzi, our scribe Gregory Downing, the hard bitten, flinty eyed Jameis Enright, the fella who can navigate us through the Bermuda Triangle, Jesse Ferguson, King of the Crow's Nest, a boy named Joe, Joel Robinson, lost at sea but never forgotten. Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Josh Wasta, Kat Esman, our resident ship's doctor, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Bahar, Matthew A. Siebert, never a more sharp eyed fellow with a telescope, our first mate, Michael Hasco, another fellow who hangs around at the crow's nest, a chap named Robbie, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helisharyu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, the keeper of the ship's log, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and the fair maid Valencia Burns. And we'll see ye next week for another commission, for we've been retained by the Crown to tackle, our first by Paul Thomas Anderson, and let me assure ye, there will be blood. But now let us bid goodbye to the sea beast. Why it goes further than Disney is Disney habitually bring out a Radcliffe, the guy from Pocahontas. And they say, look at this one greedy man. Look at Judge Claude Frollo. He's, he's like, look at the bishop's fine. The church is fine, which somewhat flies in the face of the Gothic movement. Yeah. 
uh, and these institutions are all fine. These couples are bad apples. Like these villains. Like England is fine. Clayton's a badon in Tarzan. Yeah, it's it's the it's the yellow bat on Batman's chest, but for outrage instead of bullets. It draws everybody's attention to one thing that you can then dispose of and say, we don't need to worry about that anymore. See, he's gone. He's done. He's done. We don't need to worry about him. He's dead. It's, um, I was listening to something today about... Uh, and Clayton hanged himself on the vines accidentally, and thus the day was saved, and England was fine, and so was forever. Africa. And so was Africa. <laughs> forever! forever. <laughs> um, I was listening to something today about a, an article that was full of objectionable shit from start to finish. But the writer closed on something so horrendously horrible that predictably everyone who was talking about it afterwards focused on that one the last thing parting shot and the people who wanted to ignore the rest of it when oh clearly he's only joking that's so ridiculous yeah but what about all the bullshit he said first oh that's just that's just nitpicking mm, indeed anyway but that's the point of it so yeah disney won't critique the system because they are the system. Disney yes, are, are the successors of capitalism. They are America when it does really, really well for itself. Yeah. They're not malevolent, exactly, but not. they are very much aware that they are that, that they don't want to sell you revolution. They not don't want to sell you everything evolution. They, no, not everything they do is horrendous by any stretch of the imagination, and some of the things that they do are actively good. But the bottom line is they are very, very dependent on the boat, and it is not in their interests to rock it. Yeah. Frozen 2 is a perfect example. There is clearly a storyline excised from that film about Elsa and Anna's grandfather, who was a colonial piece of shit, but... Don't look at that. Look over there. Look, we've got some new songs. Show yourself! <sighs> so... I'm really, really glad that Netflix are bankrolling these things because Netflix are not the establishment. Not, I'm not like super pro Netflix. Not They've for done want some to try shit. It. They would like. <laughs> they the would monopoly, love to be the establishment. <laughs> but they're also so fucking greedy and crazy regarding what they spend their money on. They just go, oh, here you are, struggling artist, make your thing. What's this? Stop motion? Absolutely, have your thing. What's this? Beautiful hand-drawn, oh, that's Apple, like hand-drawn animation from uh, the Cartoon Saloon. Do your thing and present us with, inadvertently, not even like we want to have anti-establishment material, but they present us with an alternative to the bad apples dead and the system can continue working peacefully. They're funding both sides of the arms race. <laughs> So ultimately, if we can take some of their money and make things oh, yeah. that are better, then that may be the best we can do at the moment. Yeah. So yeah, that's The Sea Beast. We hope you liked it, Chris Finnick. Thank you very much, Sharon, for making, for just elevating this beyond just, yeah, I liked it, it was very pretty. Which we <laughs> which could just easily Which of course, as we know, upset. I normally do. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's out. out.